Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care, and with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is Stay Tuned in Brief. I'm Preet Bharara, but I'm away this week. So John Carlin, my friend and former colleague, will be guest hosting the show today. John is a partner at the law firm of Paul Weiss and a co-chair of the firm's cybersecurity and data protection practice. He served as a top-level official in both Republican and Democratic administrations. John speaks with Dmitry Alperovich, chairman of the Silverado Policy Accelerator, a nonprofit focused on advancing U.S. prosperity and global leadership. Alperovich is also a co-founder and former CTO of CrowdStrike, a leading cybersecurity company. Here's that conversation. Dimitri, uh, welcome back. You just were in Ukraine. Tell me a little bit about how you arranged the trip and who you met with. Yeah, so it was a great trip, uh, very educational and very emotional as well. Uh, it's, uh, of course, one thing to see the imagery on social media or on television. It's another thing to experience it and um, see the real impact of this war, just even walking around Kiev, which is a very normal city, very European city. You know, all the shops are open, people walking around, and yet you still see a lot of amputees and, and the effect of this war being very real for people on a daily basis. Uh, you know, we had this driver that took us around for a couple of days and um, he had uh, returned from the front recently uh, because he has a newborn. And when we were leaving, he said, you know, I hope this war will be over before my son is uh, old enough to serve um, 18 years from now. So just um, really emotional and hits you to really appreciate the, the cost on a daily basis that the Ukrainian people are suffering because of this conflict. What motivated you to go? So what motivated me to go is to try to get the real picture and what's going on, particularly with this offensive that has just begun, and to really understand what the needs are for, for the Ukrainian military, for the Ukrainian intelligence uh, community. We met with very senior leadership in the Ministry of Defense, in the Ministry of Intelligence, military intelligence, in the SBU, um, their um, uh, civilian intelligence agency. We met with troops. So we got a really good sense of what's going right, what's going wrong, what um, they need going forward. And I'll tell you, uh, as, as you know, John, I was uh, born in the former Soviet Union, so I speak Russian fluently. And that, I think, definitely was a big differentiator for me uh, because being able to speak Russian to these people, and everyone speaks Russian, um, of course, in, in Kiev, 
is, uh, I think, a, a, an enormous advantage because uh, you get the real story and people don't BS you as much as they might, you know, Western media or, or even Western officials. Uh, because you can just say, oh, come on, you know, we, we grew up in the, in the same country in the Soviet Union. I get what you want. Uh, let's, let's talk real uh, business. And that was really, really helpful. So people were incredibly candid about their challenges, about how difficult this is. Uh, this offensive is incredibly difficult. Uh, you know, John, when we were leaving or boarding the train, of course, you can't fly into Kiev. You have to take the train in and out about 13 hours. And as we were boarding the train, suddenly out of nowhere, you had huge number, over 50 ambulances just appear out of nowhere. And they were getting ready to pick up the daily wounded that were coming in from the oh, front. Wow. So this is before you're in Ukraine. You're just getting ready to board the train. No, no, no getting, getting, getting back from Kiev. I see. So the train basically daily comes in from the front into Kiev to distribute the wounded across the, the, the hospitals in Kiev. And it was just row upon row upon row of ambulances, just nonstop occupying the entire train station. And uh, I was talking to some of the people, the train conductors, and they said, you know, this is a really good day because uh, this is a fairly small number compared to the usual. Uh, wow. And that just really get, gets, gets you to understand in real terms what the impact is, right? And these are ambulances of wounded, not, not even uh, the, the, the ones that get killed. The other thing that was really, really interesting is how the conversation and the focus of the conflict is very, very different from the discussion that you would hear here in DC and, and across uh, Western capitals where the talk is all about, you know, what territory is Ukraine gonna capture? Are they gonna uh, succeed in this counteroffensive to take the South or maybe, you know, attack Crimea at some point? That was not the conversation in Ukraine. In Ukraine, they were much more focused on the strategic issue of how does this war end and how do we make sure that we have durable safety where Russia does not attack us two years from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, because they know that this is, as long as Putin is in power, this is going to continue uh, very likely. And even if he is replaced, he's more likely to be replaced, not by a Russian version of Thomas Jefferson, but someone much more likely to be uh, in line with Putin and his imperialist thinking. So we were there, of course, during the week of the NATO summit in Vilnius, and the Ukrainians were really pushing on the Americans and, uh, and the Europeans to give them a deadline for um, when they could actually join NATO, not just um, kind of squishy talk of, uh, you know, one day you will join when this war is over. They wanted sort of a hard date or hard commitment on NATO and, of course, didn't get one. And there was uh, a lot of frustration. Um, they were telling me, basically, don't, don't you guys understand that without NATO, we will never be secure? So I know one thing you do is, uh, and again, with your, with your language skills and background, and you, you monitor some of the chat, what do you think ordinary Russian folks on the street are saying? How does it compare? So that's a great question, John, because I think on the Russian side, you, you actually have similar frustrations, right? They suffered huge casualties, and uh, this war clearly is having a very negative effect on their economy. Um, but there is, I think, uh, a desperation in Russia where they don't think that things can ever get better, that this is just the way it is and you have to accept it. Uh, you know, Russians love misery. Uh, they've experienced lots <laughs> of Do you of count misery. yourself in as a Russian on that score or uh, <laughs> have you become Americanized? I tend to be pretty pessimistic that, you know, today's pretty good, but tomorrow will likely be worse uh, is something that you kind of uh, 
take in with mother's milk in in, in Russia, <laughs> and uh, you know having suffered through numerous dictators, you know from the Stalins and Lenins of the world, the czars, and so forth, um, they think that this is just a normal way of life, and they don't expect things to get better. They don't expect their government to do better for them, like we do in this country. And as a result, they're just quietly suffering. Um, you know, John, I, I read this incredible piece a few months ago uh, that talked about um, the rape culture in the Russian military and how you have these women that sign up to be nurses and logistics people uh, in the military and they go to Ukraine and they're basically forced to be field wives, quote unquote, uh, for commanders and, and satisfy them sexually uh, in, in a forceful way. Uh, and this woman, you know, comes back from Ukraine, just completely emotionally destroyed by what she had seen and, 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 uh, experienced herself. And her reaction was the most unbelievable to me where she said, well, you know, in a couple of months, I'm going to go back, uh, because, um, I can't get a job here. I, uh, I need money to survive. So I might as well go back and who knows, maybe I'll get a commander who won't make me do this, right? This is the reaction that you often get in Russia is that it's pretty terrible, uh, but we have no other choice. You talked a little bit about frustration. I mean, out of the summit, it seemed like there was surprising positivity from all sides, not just NATO, but uh, uh, from the Ukrainian delegation. Do you think the U.S., and NATO are providing the support they should be providing to Ukraine? Should they be doing more, less? It's a really hard question. So a lot of people say, you look at the, all the military equipment that we've provided to Ukraine since the war began and really before then, uh, from the Javelin anti-tank missiles to now tanks themselves and Brand Bradley infantry fighting vehicles and uh, artillery munitions and artillery systems and Patriot air defense systems and on and on and on. And there are people that say, well, if we had done that all before the war or even just as the war began, this would have had a very significant effect on the Ukrainian military's ability to push back on Russia and potentially take uh, a lot of territory. And that's probably correct. However, the other side of the coin here is that if we had done all of this, right, provided all of those munitions and weapon systems to the Ukrainians the first week of the war, we probably would have forced a response from Russia. And the number one priority from the Biden administration, President Biden articulates it all the time, is that we want to avoid a conflict with Russia, essentially getting into World War III with the number one nuclear power. Russia has more nuclear weapons than any other country in the world. And you said that too, Dimitri. Like early on, I remember you warned in The Economist and elsewhere that we have to be very careful in our response to avoid starting an escalation pattern. Yeah. And I think the administration has done this very well, where they realize that boiling the frog and sort of dripping those weapon systems in. Yes, it's having, of course, a devastating effect on Ukraine. They're suffering a lot because of it. They're suffering enormous casualties, but it likely has avoided an escalation and avoided um, Putin being forced to respond against us. Uh, of course, you know, counterfactuals are hard and we never know what would have happened in the other scenario. Uh, but it, it's it's likely, at least, that uh, he would have felt obligated to respond to to something of that size. Now, the real problem here is that the Ukrainian military is still not a Western military, right? They don't have a great air force. Um, they're flying these old Soviet jets. They're completely outranged by the uh, Russian jets. 
they don't have bombers that can go over these minefields and destroy them, right? They w- uh, the U.S. military would never fight uh, this particular offensive like the Ukrainian military would do. We would never enter those minefields before we would obliterate them with, you know, B-2 bombers, just uh, carpet bombing the entire field before the infantry would drive in. But that's not an option for Ukraine. So, uh, and, and, and you can't necessarily turn them into an American military. The cost would be too great. It would take too long. So they have to do with what they've got, as unfortunate as it is. And um, they've done terrifically with that so far. They've taken back Kharkiv Oblast. They've taken back Kherson. Um, they've been able to inflict enormous casualties on the Russians in their offensive. Uh, even though they were able to take Bakhmut, the cost was very, very high. But this is very difficult. And... Uh, very likely it's going on, going to go on for a long time. Um, the Ukrainians are preparing for it, that Putin is not going to stop. And I think that's one of the things that there is a lack of appreciation of in, in our country and across Europe is that we're in for the long term. And in fact, if you look at history of conflicts, of wars, they tend to kind of cluster around two extremes where wars are either very, very short, they last a couple of months, or if they go beyond a year, they tend to go for a very long time and take many years. Uh, and in some ways, uh, this war has been going on for nine years already since 2014. Uh, so it, it may very frame. well go yeah. for another nine years. Do you think Putin, I mean, he says this openly, really, but it's clearly a part of his strategy is that he just does not believe that the West is capable of a sustained engagement and that he can outlast the West. That's clearly part of his calculation. Do, do you think he's right? That's certainly the strategy. And um, there are two aspects to it, right, in terms of valuing whether he's right or not. One is a political will. And certainly we're hearing from Congress that there is uh, tiresomeness that, that is setting in, uh, both on members and frankly, even on their um, members of their districts. I, I was talking to centrist Democrats, centrist Republicans that were telling me in the last couple of months that uh, they're hearing from their constituents saying, why are we spending so much money on Ukraine when we have all these issues at home, you know, uh, lack of health care, rising crime and so forth. Um, so there is that pressure that's bubbling up from from the bottom up. And then you have uh, members of Congress on the Republican side, uh, more on the, on the right wing of the Republican side that don't want us to fight this war to begin with, um, to supply Ukraine at all. And you're looking at um, this debt limit deal that was passed, um, even in the face of um, Freedom Caucus opposition in Congress, you start wondering, can you get another $40, $50 billion package past the House uh, to assist Ukraine going forward because they're going to need it. They're going to need more artillery munitions. They're going to need, uh, if they're going to get fighter jets, they're going to need F-16s, which are very, very expensive. And um, there's a question of how do you actually get them the funding through Congress that they would require. And then the second element of this is that on certain things, we actually have very little to give them now. Uh, there's been this big debate about whether to give Ukraine cluster munitions because of a number of countries banning them and, and humanitarian concerns around cluster munitions. And the Biden administration just last week decided to do so because we have no artillery munitions to give. Uh, so the 155 millimeter artillery shell, which is sort of the mainstay of US and, and Western artillery systems, were very low on our inventories. And in fact, 
it is now well publicized that the large quantities of artillery shells that the Ukrainians are using in this counteroffensive came from South Korea, where U.S. basically bought it from South Korea and provided to to the Ukrainians. Well, guess what? The South Koreans don't have any more to give, and we are ramping up ramping up our production. But it's not going to go into effect till 2025 at the earliest. Let so, me pause you for a sec on the cluster munition question. You're saying we couldn't provide the type of conventional artillery that they needed. And so the decision was made to provide these cluster munitions. And one of the reasons they've been condemned for use is that many of them don't explode. And so like mines remain and can be picked up by children and others and cause terrible uh, injuries and damage later. And there was a debate about whether to provide them. And I know one school of thought was that is a terrible choice, but it, they'll be deployed defensively in Ukraine by a government under attack. And that's a choice that should be made by the Ukrainians and they've asked for them. And there's another school of thought that says, every time you facilitate their use, you're setting a, setting a standard for other countries around the world to use them and they are a crime against humanity. Where, where do you fall on the scale? What do you think the right choice was? Yeah, I was not opposed to providing them. By the way, the U.S. military uses them. Russia certainly uses them. Plenty of countries around the world use them. There are some countries that have signed up to this ban on cluster munitions, but most major countries, Russia, China, U.S., have not. And they're a powerful military tool. They're, they're very effective. Yes, uh, probably somewhere around the order of 25 to 30% of them will not explode. And you will need to do significant cleanup afterwards to make sure that you um, reduce the chance of civilian casualties. But by the way, much of uh, Eastern Ukraine now is littered with mines, anti-personnel mines. So you already have uh, an enormous problem on that front um, and cluster munitions um, in the magnitude that they're being provided are really not going to add significantly to that already humongous problem. So I don't think that, the, for me, this was not a controversial decision at all. I understand sort of the geopolitical concerns around it. Uh, but the reality is that if you want Ukraine to have a chance to succeed in this counteroffensive, they had to get them. There was no other option. So um, uh, I'm glad that the administration came out on that side. In terms of uh, staying power, you had this bizarre spectacle play out with Prigozhin and his aborted march towards Moscow, his disappearance, his reappearance, all sorts of different theories about uh, what's going on inside Putin's Russia. Was this something that was discussed while you were on the ground in Ukraine? What do you make of it? We did. We did. Uh, we talked extensively to Ukrainian military intelligence um, to understand their view on this. So the prevailing view, and, and I think it's the correct view, is that Prigozhin got a little too cocky, that this was not really a coup against Putin. Uh, I don't think that this was an attempt to change regime in Russia, but he thought quite mistakenly and quite stupidly that if he had this demonstration of force, uh, that he could actually get Putin to fire Shoigu, the defense minister, and Gerasimov, the head of general staff, and potentially get one of his own supporters, like General Surovikin, for example, who built much of the fortifications that the Ukrainians are now trying to penetrate, to be appointed to those positions. Uh, or maybe even Prigozhin himself 
maybe was I uh, becoming the defense minister. That was, of course, a really dumb idea to begin with, because even if he had succeeded, as uh, clearly was his original plan to capture Shoigu and Gerasimov when they were on a trip to Rostov, that city that he ended up um, taking, Putin would have never caved to his demands. Like no leader would have, right? Uh, caved to, to blackmail like that. So uh, it was always an idiotic idea. I think he got overly confident uh, because of the importance of Wagner over last year in this war in Ukraine. Um, they were the only ones that achieved any sort of successes since the early days of the war by taking Bakhmut, by taking Solodar, these um, places in, in the Donbass. Uh, so he thought that he had become indispensable. And of course, no one is indispensable. And Putin saw this as a direct challenge to his rule, uh, which it was, even though this was not directed at him, it was directed at Shoigu and Gerasimov, but you can't just do that in any system uh, and, and expect uh, the leader of that country to just uh, go along with it. Well, we're not just talking about any system either, right? We're talking about someone who's notorious for disappearing, torturing, killing through means of the state or assassination, his political enemies. Did this weaken Putin by showing someone who is this capable of not just dissent, but moving troops towards Moscow? And how do you analyze the fact that he's still alive uh, to tell the tale right now? Yeah, so this is really interesting. So a lot of people, I think, misunderstand Putin. They think that because he's a dictator, and he clearly is, that he is like another reincarnation of Stalin. And he is not. He is nowhere near as brave as Stalin, um, or frankly, as bloodthirsty, although he's plenty bloodthirsty. But um, yes, he has killed political opponents. Uh, he has poisoned them. He's conducted certain assassinations, but only for people that are actually weak. Right, he has never taken on people that are strong. Um, and Prigozhin and Wagner are armed to the teeth. They're highly experienced. They've been fighting in wars all over the world, in Africa, in Syria, in Libya, and now in Ukraine since 2014. So this is not someone you just can easily disappear. And I think that's what's given Putin a lot of pause is that for the first time in his uh, rule, he's not just con uh, confronting someone like Navalny who can get, you know, maybe 10 or 20,000 people out on the streets to protest in Moscow. He's confronting a military that is very strong, right? Uh, an, an armed force. And uh, that is something that he is uh, not brave enough to confront. He, he was missing in action for the first 13 hours of this mutiny, uh, I think trying to figure out what he's going to do. So he really showed his true colors, you're seeing right now a very interesting thing taking place in, in geopolitical relations where Turkey, uh, President Erdogan, has done a complete 180 on Russia over last week by saying that Ukraine should join NATO, by allowing Sweden now in to NATO, uh, by releasing uh, these fighters from Mariupol, the SO fighters that went to Turkey as part of the deal with Russia, um, that uh, they would not return to Ukraine before the war is over, and he released them and let them go back to Ukraine. So he's clearly antagonizing Russia. I think there are probably a number of reasons for it, but one of them is likely he's looking at Putin, and he, he's thinking to himself, when I had a coup launched against me in 2016, I arrested like 50,000 people, including people that had nothing to do with this coup. I, I cracked down and this guy is incapable of doing not only that, but also even putting in jail the guy that started it. So I do think that Putin looks incredibly weak, both domestically as well as um, on the global stage. Now, that doesn't mean that he is in danger of getting overthrown. Uh, he still faces a problem or not the problem, but uh, from his perspective, 
the the situation that there's really no opposition to him. Let me ask a little just on the on the personal front. If those who don't know your background, can you talk a little bit about your memories of being in the former Soviet Union and moving, I guess, first to Canada, right, and then to the United States. Yeah, so uh, it, w- it was actually my first time, believe it or not, coming back to uh, former Soviet Union. Um, oh, I didn't know that. I've been to the Baltics, but haven't been back to, to Ukraine or Russia since I left. Well, you uh, won't be going back to Russia anytime soon. <laughs> that's right. Because you that's were right. sanctioned by uh, Putin, which must have been a bit of a surprise to you. Uh, it wasn't a surprise. Uh, the only surprise was what took them so long, because uh, obviously I've done a lot of work um, to be on his radar for many years in the cyber arena, uh, highlighting the operations that the Russian intelligence was conducting against the United States in many situations. But yes, uh, certainly Russian vacation plans are not uh, on our trip calendar anytime soon. Uh, but being back in Ukraine was uh, very interesting. Uh, obviously, the country has changed a lot uh, since I've last been there, but um, in many ways it hasn't. The people are still the same and um, they are incredibly resilient, like they've always been. And uh, it, it was quite nostalgic to go back there. And you moved to the United States. What was it like originally being a, a smart young, what were you, 13? Yeah. Uh, uh, living in Tennessee. Uh, well, it, it was a little bit of a culture shock. So as, as you mentioned, John, we first moved to Canada, to Toronto, which was actually not that big of a change. We lived in Moscow and big city, moved to Toronto. I spoke English very well because I'd learned it from uh, from young age. Um, but then I moved to Chattanooga, Tennessee, which um, was uh, a very different experience. Uh, at first, I thought that um, they didn't speak English because I couldn't understand anyone anymore. Uh, and I remember my first experience in high school, the first day this kid comes up to me and he asked me where, where I'm from. And I kind of hesitated saying, you know, Russia because uh, the Soviet Union had just ended and, you know, this is deep South. So it wasn't quite clear how people felt about Russians. So I said, Canada, you know, where I just arrived from. And he said, where's that? And that's when I knew that uh, my answer was not uh, very relevant uh, uh, to, to, to the outcome of the conversation. But um, look, I, I, I love growing up uh, in the States, going to college here. And, you know, I'm an American citizen, very proud of this country. So, uh, so very, very happy, certainly, that um, my family was able to immigrate and that I'm not currently in Russia being conscripted to fight in this illegal, atrocious war. And you've had enormous uh, success here and created really an innovative company on protecting companies against cybersecurity threats. And as you've said as well, having an intelligence arm of the company that laid out and made public for the first time what certain nation states, including Russia, were doing. I want to turn to that for a sec. But before I do, one question for you. There's been this this brain drain. There's the Russian intelligentsia. Many have fled hundreds of thousands, it seems, have fled. And they're kind of the Dimitris of the next next generation. What do you think the long-term impact will be? And do you think there's more we should be doing in the U.S. to welcome them here? Oh, absolutely. I think uh, the Biden administration, Congress have done a, a very good job, I think, overall managing the escalation of this crisis, supporting Ukraine. But the one thing that I wish we were doing, and I realize this is a very toxic political issue, but welcoming these people with open arms, either Ukrainians or Russians that are well-educated, that can be contributing to the success of America, like I have, like many of my 
uh, immigrants, um, fellow immigrants have, you know, many of the companies now, the largest companies in the world that are American are run by immigrants, whether it's Microsoft with Satya, whether it's uh, Google with Sundar, whether it's Sergey Brin that helped to start Google. Um, so immigrants, I think, have always, over the course of the history of this country, have contributed massively to its success. And uh, you have a unique opportunity right now to allow whether it's smart Russians or smart Ukrainians that are looking to, to leave and make a better life for them and their kids to come here, to start companies, to contribute to existing companies. And I think we're missing the, that opportunity. One of the uh, reasons that's been articulated why the West needs to stand strong with Ukraine and stop Russian aggression is in part to stop a different tragedy from occurring. And that is to prevent a Chinese invasion, a People's Republic of China invasion of Taiwan. You've been warning and thought, you know, as of a year or two ago, that neither Taiwan nor the United States was taking the prospect of such an invasion seriously enough. What do you think today? Oh, I'm incredibly concerned about the prospect of Chinese invasion of Taiwan, which would be catastrophic for the United States, for the world, uh, because there are two potential outcomes if such an invasion takes place. A, we get into a war with China over Taiwan, which would let very likely be World War III between two nuclear superpowers that are highly well-armed and um, capable of inflicting just enormous damage on each other. Or two, we stand by and let China take over Taiwan without interfering, which would result in our immediate loss of all influence in the Indo-Pacific, the part of the world where 70% of the world's trade is, the, really the future of this planet. And that would have catastrophic implications for U.S.'s ability to maintain its global position as the world's only superpower. Both are, I think, um, terrible outcomes for America. I don't necessarily think that Ukraine and Taiwan are linked, as many people are arguing. Whether Russia is defeated or not in Ukraine, I think, has very little bearing on President Xi's decision to take Taiwan, which I do think that he is very intent on doing. Obviously, he's looking at this conflict, he's learning from it. And to the extent that the West has come together to punish Russia economically, he is concerned about that and trying to think of ways to isolate his own economy from the types of sanctions and export control measures that we've lobbied on Russia in the event that he invades. Uh, but there are numerous reasons why I think he's interested in invading Taiwan that have nothing to do with Russia, that have nothing to do with Ukraine. So I don't necessarily think that this is sort of a new domino theory, a la the domino theory of the 1960s that, you know, if Vietnam falls, the rest of Asia will become communists. Um, so I don't think that the same is going to happen if Ukraine does not succeed. Although there are very good reasons, uh, of course, to support Ukraine. And I want to make it very clear to, to your listeners that I'm a big supporter of Ukraine and want to help them win this war and defeat Russia. But I, I think the two issues are not quite linked. Talking a little more about China, last uh, last week we saw news that right after Secretary Yellen had met about in part seeing where we could restore economic ties, there's news of yet another hack by the Chinese government, this time of the Commerce Department and of the Secretary of Commerce's email account. And it looks like the vulnerability was through Microsoft. And 
I know you discussed a little bit how much the in the solar winds, Russian intrusion, that a lot of the a actual issues, the hacks that took place because of the vulnerability in solar winds were through Microsoft and that they were unable to be detected because of Microsoft. What do you think of the what you've read about the current hack? Well, first of all, on the China front, as you well know, John, because you actually were uh, on your first trip to the to the Justice Department uh, back in uh, 2014, uh, you led the prosecution of the f the first prosecution of foreign intelligence officers for cyber espionage um, um, when you indicted PLA officers for doing that. The Chinese have been very aggressive at this for two decades now, over two decades, stealing everything under the sun, whether it's from domestic industry, from government agencies, using cyber as an incredible wealth transfer mechanism to empower their own companies to become the global behemoths that they are now, companies like Huawei, for example. When it comes to the Microsoft issue, I do think that they would do well for more transparency. You know, when I was reading this blog that they published uh, this week on, on this hack, of cloud accounts, including of Secretary of Commerce, Gina Raimondo, on the Microsoft platform, there was an interesting wording there that talked about how the way that the Chinese had gotten into all of these different accounts was by using one of the Microsoft's private keys, one of the most sensitive crown jewels that, that any company has. These private keys are used to sign code or sign authentication requests. And they said that the adversaries had, quote, acquired them. And I thought that was a very interesting I noticed to that use. too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what, what does that mean? Did they go to the store and, and acquire a private key? Um, you know, chances are that they stole it from Microsoft, right? And there's no details on how that happened, what else they may have stolen. So I do hope that uh, folks at Microsoft who do great work on cybersecurity, they have really phenomenal people there, uh, they collect a lot of intelligence that they really become more transparent and, and forthcoming when issues occur like this one and others and really tell the whole story of what's going on on their private security front and not try to sweep it under the rug and use kind of legalese language uh, to make it seem like everything is hunky-dory. Hacks happen. And, and this is something that I think- Can uh, I pause you one sec though on the, on the key? Could you just explain- for our listeners, what, why that's so significant? Sure. So, so, and again, we don't have much information on exactly the type of key that was taken and, and how it was taken. But anytime you have a sensitive private key that is used across the entire Microsoft platform to either allow for people to log in into accounts or to sign code that can run on Microsoft's platforms, like in their Azure cloud or on Microsoft um, Windows operating system, that is a huge problem. And those keys literally have to be some of the most uh, sensitive pieces of data that Microsoft has in their possession that has to be highly, highly protected. And if they had been compromised, that's very disturbing. So understanding, was that an insider? Was that an intrusion into Microsoft that enabled that to happen? How did they quote unquote acquire them? I think that's really, really important. But the broader point here is that we need to start destigmatizing hacks. And the reality is that cybersecurity is really tough. You're defending yourself day in and day out against highly capable adversaries that have a lot of resources. 
And mistakes happen, they happen to everyone. Um, I think every major security company at this point, including uh, my previous company that I've founded, has uh, had security issues and we've come forward and others have come forward and told the story. And um, the more companies do this, the more I think it makes everyone appreciate that this is really, really hard. And um, the name, nature of the game here is not to stop every hack because that's impossible, but to try to mitigate the damage to make sure that attackers are not succeeding in their ultimate objectives, that they're quickly discovered, quickly contained. And the more information that we can put out on the failures can help educate everyone. So I would encourage Microsoft and everyone else that's getting hacked to come forward and uh, reveal those details. It's incredibly important. Let me switch one last to a technology of the future that I know you've been pretty, uh, as usual, blunt and open about. And on this, you've said that that you made a you made a mistake and that you'd been an AI skeptic and you were surprised at the speed with which the generative AI rolled out and how revolutionary it is. Now that you've seen this change, what do you think we should be doing, particularly around cybersecurity in response? Yeah, so, you know, the, the most amazing thing here is that I've been involved in AI or machine learning, as it used to be called, for 20 years, uh, uh, working on algorithms in cybersecurity space to use these technologies. And, you know, when I say I was a skeptic, uh, I was certainly a great believer in their ability to help humans make decisions faster, sift through large portions of the data. What I did not expect is they would come so far along in such a rapid uh, period of time really without changing underlying algorithms to a great extent. The algorithms that we're using now in these generative AI models, these so-called transformer algorithms, are basically neural networks that had been vended all the way back to the 1960s. Uh, some modifications over time, but really not sort of revolutionary or drastic. But what has changed is that we have thrown mind-boggling amount of compute, of raw GPUs, graphical processor units at this problem. And that alone has given us these incredible advances that no one could have imagined even just 10 years ago. And of course, computing power continues to scale, um, even though there are some implications uh, for Moore's law in the CPU area where there've been quite a few slowdowns and GPUs, they're still um, advancing pretty, uh, pretty successfully. Uh, so you can expect that at least for the next few years, we'll continue to see some dramatic improvements uh, in this field. And I think it has both positive and negative implications for our society. On the positive front, it's going to be an enormous productivity tool, one that we can't even imagine right now where so much of our capabilities are going to be augmented by artificial intelligence. For one, the most basic one that anyone can see now is that virtually every computer interface is going to be English going forward because you can just ask a question and that will be converted by AI into instructions for, for the computer. We're already seeing that in software engineering where instead of writing code, you can simply ask the question and the code will be provided for you. It's not great yet. You still have to vet it. There's still hallucinations that take place and, and so forth, but you can see where this is going to go and, and go very quickly. There are dangers to it as well. And uh, one of the dangers that I'm very concerned about is actually not in cybersecurity because in cybersecurity, I think you have this unique dynamic of a cat and mouse game where an adversary gets an advantage and then defenders uh, respond and, and that will continue and AI will be used on both sides with some success. But where I worry is actually in the terrorism front 
one of the things where AI holds, I think, perhaps the greatest promise for our human civilization is in the area of biotech, where uh, you can use AI to invent new drugs, and we're already starting to see some of that, uh, invent cures for diseases and the like. Enormous promise in that space, but it comes with downsides, right? In addition to inventing new drugs, you can ask it to invent new pathogens that can kill people and uh, create terrible biological weapons. So we need to be very thoughtful about who has access to uh, these capabilities and what, what kind of questions are allowed to be asked and what kind of answers are allowed to be provided in those systems, particularly when it comes to providing information that can uh, destroy humanity. Uh, imagine you know, someone asking ChatGPT, how do I build a nuclear weapon? How do I build this particular pathogen? Those are not the questions that should ever be allowed to be asked or, or answers provided. Yeah, and we've seen, right? We've seen a version of this with a technology that had far less dramatic consequences, but still was was utilized by terrorists, right? In terms of how to make a, a bomb in the kitchen of your mom suddenly became much more accessible just due to social media. And we saw it exploited by by terrorist groups. So your your points are well are well taken. Dimitri, I want to uh not just thank you for for joining us but uh today. But also, you are an example of uh, of why smart immigration makes makes sense. Your contributions to the country through CrowdStrike and and defending so many companies in different ways, but also your contributions to our intellectual debate. And we didn't really dwell on it, and we we may have uh, joked around a little bit about it in terms of you being sanctioned, but not uh, unaware of the fact that there's personal risk that you take on when you were so outspoken about Putin's regime before the aggression in Ukraine, and I think spotting trying to spot and warn that an event like this was going to happen and that that, that put you and to some extent your family at risk. So, so thank you for the courage to state your, state your true views and for joining us today. Well, thank you so much, John. Right back at you, the, the work that you've done in government and outside of government in this space, um, going after terrorists, going after other nation states that do this country harm uh, has been immense and you've made this country much more secure. So thank you for that. For more analysis of legal and political issues making the headlines, become a member of the Cafe Insider. Members get access to exclusive content, including the weekly podcast I co-host with former U.S. attorney Joyce Vance. Head to cafe.com slash insider to sign up for a trial. That's cafe.com slash insider. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tatashore. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The editorial producers are Sam Ozer-Staten and Noah Azulai. The audio producer is Nat Wiener. And the cafe team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Jake Kaplan, Namata Shah, and Claudia Hernandez. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned. 
Support for this show comes from Fundrise. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting Fundrise.com Fox. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at Fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement.